All right, so let's get started. Um, hello, everyone. So welcome to the start of the spring 21 semester. So today we have here Professor Adwait uh, Natkarni. Uh, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Computer Science uh, at William and Mary. And he's also director of the Secure Platforms Lab, SPL, right? Um, so Professor Natkarni's research is basically in the domain of security and privacy with a focusing on emerging platforms. Uh, especially he applies, you know, like some theories from operating systems and software security. And I really see his couple of papers uh, at top tier using uh, top tier uh, security conferences, especially in the domain of smart homes. So he obtained his PhD in uh, computer science department uh, from North Carolina State University under supervision of William Eng. Um, so when he was at NC State, uh, he was the co-founder of the Wolfpack Security and Privacy Research Lab, and he also lead as a lead graduate student until May 2017. So Adwit and I'm uh, also academic relate relatives. His advisor is, uh, is my advisor's student, basically, right? Professor Patrick McDaniels. Cool. So Adwit. Please, you can start anytime. And thanks for again uh, for this talk. No, thank you for the introduction. And so I'm really glad to talk to you folks today. I'm glad this is the first uh, seminar uh, of the series uh, beginning the semester. Uh, I'm really glad to talk about IoT security and privacy, you know, because let's face it, uh, the state of IoT security right now isn't really that great, right? Uh, just the other day, I was reading the uh, a report from Microsoft's uh, security team, uh, which suggested that attackers are really ramping up their attacks on IT systems. Just last year, uh, I believe there was an increase in the volume of attacks by roughly 35%. You know, and just because of this, every other day you hear about uh, a device or platform being vulnerable, or in the worst case, uh, a compromise in a particular user's home. Um, and that suggests that we really need to focus on this area right now and we need to solve some of these problems that keep coming back. So if you notice uh, on the, uh, if you observe the attacks that are on the slide and the attacks that you generally hear about in the world, uh, most of these attacks happen because of one of two reasons. One, uh, because uh, the user doesn't really follow password best practices. So users probably use very predictable passwords or um, don't really have a two-factor authentication and likes. And because devices, uh, devices are often vulnerable. You know, when devices um, essentially have uh, default passwords set up or have open ports, that's when most of these problems happen. But the attacks that I'm gonna to talk to you about today, they can happen even when users and device manufacturers both follow best practices. So let's take a look at an example. See you have a user, Alice, and Alice is a typical smart home owner. She's a, she has a bunch of devices such as a thermostat, light bulb, a smart switch, and a security camera that she uses for home monitoring. So the way Alice wants to use this camera is Alice wants it to turn on for monitoring when she leaves the house. And she wants it to turn off when uh, essentially when uh, she comes back to preserve her privacy. She doesn't really want the camera to monitor her. She just wants it to monitor the house when she's away. Now, the way Alice accomplishes both of these things is using trigger action programs known as routines. Essentially, these are programs, uh, we call them home automation routines, IoT apps, or trigger action home automation programs. There are several names for these. These programs execute an action when a particular trigger condition is satisfied. That's really all there is to it. And most popular platforms support these trigger action routines, right? So now that we know routines, let's introduce our attacker, Bob. So Bob wants to steal something from Alice's house without being monitored. Now we can assume Bob to be someone who's familiar with Alice's, Alice and Alice's house, someone who's either a colleague or an ex-boyfriend, someone who's been to the house before, knows how Alice protects her, way, uh, her values, right? So Bob knows that there's a camera that's monitoring the house and Bob doesn't want to be recorded by the camera in the middle of a burglary. So naturally, Bob will first try to directly attack the camera using a range of wireless attacks um, and essentially try to compromise it. But remember what our assumption was. 
we assume that Alice is following password bridge practices. So she's using two-factor authentication and a password manager. She doesn't have a predictable password. So Bob, that, that attack vector is not really available for Bob. And we also assume that the camera itself is not vulnerable. It's a reputed brand like Nest, which is generally not easy to compromise, right? So this attack fails. Bob isn't able to directly compromise the camera. However, what Bob can do instead is indirectly attack the camera through something known as a lateral privilege escalation. So essentially, Bob is going to compromise a vulnerable component connected to the house, say a light switch, and then leverage it to disable the camera. Right? So essentially, Bob is not going to directly attack the camera, but remotely disable it by compromising something else in the house. So you're obviously wondering how Bob can do either of these things. So let's dig a little bit deeper. So if you think about vulnerable components attached to the house, there are several possibilities. For the sake of this example, let's assume we're talking about a mobile application that's connected to the smart home platform that Alice uses, right? So let's take an example like the TP-Link Casa app, which controls TP-Link's uh, series of products. Now, mobile applications are notorious for misusing the SSL and TLS protocol uh, standard that's uh, used for communicating securely with servers on the internet. And these applications, mobile applications, we've known for decades how they misuse cryptography and especially SSL and TLS in several different ways. So attacking these apps is extremely easy. All Bob has to do is find such an application that Alice uses that is also vulnerable, has to some SSL TLS misuse. Man in the middle of the connection from that app to its server, and then steal an authentication token that can be used to uh, send commands to the to Alice's smart home platform. Now, note that these attacks are extremely easy to perform. Bob just has to be connected to the same network as Alice in order to steal this token. And this could be something like a Starbucks that both Alice and Bob are visiting or a common uh, shared office network, right? So once Bob steals the token, Bob still can't directly attack the camera. That's not going to be possible. But what Bob can do is Bob can use the token to send commands to Alice's platform. And in this particular case, Bob tells the platform to set the home to home mode instead of away, right? Do you remember the routines we talked about? Well, what this does is once the home is set to home mode, it triggers the routine that says, if I'm home, turn the camera off and forces the platform to turn the camera off. We successfully disabled the Nest camera remotely using this approach. It was extremely easy to do so. And there are several options other than the TP-Link CASA app that we could have used uh, in order to perform this. So if you ask the question, why does this attack happen? Why is this possible? The answer is first, you've got a third-party integration or a plethora of third-party integrations that are vulnerable that you can use to at least get access to the smart home. And then you've got home automation routines that you can leverage as gadgets. And it turns out that researchers have also recognized these attack vectors, which is why there's been a ton of research on analyzing IoT applications, which are essentially routines created by third-party developers. So they have a bit of both, right? They represent both third-party integration and uh, automation in the smart home. These IoT applications are published on marketplaces such as SmartThings. On SmartThings, they're called smart apps. And I don't know about you, but what this reminds me of are Android apps that are present on Google Play or uh, iOS apps that are present on Apple's App Store, right? IoT apps have, have many similarities with mobile applications. These are almost identical things, right? For example, both of these, both IoT apps and mobile applications are made by third-party developers. They're both published on these marketplaces that are accessible to users. They both use APIs provided by the platforms and sometimes misuse these APIs. And most importantly, and this is the most important for security analysis, they're both available for analysis by researchers. And this has spurred a significant amount of research that either analyzes or instruments IoT applications for a variety of security goals, some of which are common with the Android security research in the past, and some of which are unique to the smart home space. But there have been significant detection systems and defenses that are built using IoT apps or for IoT applications. 
So everything is great, right? You had mobile applications in the past that you use for building security systems. Now you have IoT applications that you're similarly using. These are available. These uh, are deployed on popular platforms. Everything is awesome, right? Well, except not really. You see, the smart home is a really unique space. And the key factors that have enabled applications and app analysis in the smartphone domain simply do not exist in the smart home. You remember when I said IoT applications and mobile apps are equivalent? I was lying. The fact is that these two things are extremely different. Let me give you an example. Say you uh, consider Gmail, right? Gmail is a typical mobile application uh, with uh, consistent, uh, simple functionality. It wants to get your email, right? Now, say you get an email in the Gmail application. That email consists of an attachment. And let's say that attachment is a document. When you click on that attachment, what happens is that attachment opens up in a document viewer of your choice. What you just did here is you combine the functionality of two different unique applications, essentially created a mashup of the existing functionality in order to fulfill whatever higher level purpose that you had at this point. And such mashups are extremely common in the smartphone domain, right? There's been a lot of research on how users combine multiple applications, multiple functionality. It's an extremely common thing to happen. Now let's look at this combination of functionality here in the mobile space and then take a look at this routine. Isn't this also a combination of two functions instead of being a unique function itself? So the two functions here are something that tracks when you come home and something that uh, turns the camera off when uh, in response to some event, right? So these are two individual functions that users combine instead of it being a unique functionality itself. So if you really look at it, IoT applications are not similar to mobile applications. In fact, they lie at a higher level of abstraction. And that changes everything. For instance, since IoT applications lie at this high level of abstraction, users can create their own routines and right? users can combine existing functionality. You don't have to be a software engineer to simply use a UI and combine existing functionality. You don't need to write code for that. So users can create these routines, which leads to user-driven automation. They do not need developers anymore. They do not need IoT apps anymore. The second thing that happens is that IoT applications that developers create may actually not reflect what users want. And this is something we discovered when we did a user study uh, last year uh, with uh, over 40 users. We found that 42% of the routines that were created by our users were simply not represented by any IoT app in the smarting marketplace. What this tells you is that developers just can't build routines that reflect your user requirements. And in fact, it's not only that users do not need developers, but they do need to create their own routines, right? User-driven routines need to happen because developers aren't making them. And what these factors result in is a situation where IoT applications that we've been using for research are simply not that popular, right? Users aren't using them and developers are not building them. And let me tell you why come to this conclusion. Let's take a look at this graph, which shows the growth of the Android Play Store from 2009 to March 2020, right? If you look at the first four years, you'll see that the Play Store grew from roughly 2,000 applications to a million applications just in four years. This kind of growth doesn't really happen in a vacuum, right? It takes significant incentive for developers to build so many applications in so less time. And now let's look at smart things, right? You see that it had uh, the smart thing marketplace had 185 applications in September 2018, 185 in 2019, and 186 in 2020. What does that tell you? It tells you that developers simply do not have the incentive to build apps because users aren't using them or because they simply don't know how. They don't know how to build an automation that would reflect the user's workflow that somebody would actually want to use. Now, even if all of these things did not make sense, even if all of these factors did not exist, a problem 
is that platforms aren't really uh, supporting IoT apps as hosted applications anymore. IoT apps are simply not available for analysis, right? So in the past, smart things used to host IoT apps and used to get access to it for analysis, but now most platforms treat IoT applications as third-party endpoints, and that's it. Right? They treat this third-party integration as a black box that runs on the developer's cloud. So the platform really doesn't care where it's hosted. It could be a Lambda function in AWS. It could run, be something that runs on the developer's cloud. But what this means for research is that these apps are not going to be able, uh, available for analysis anymore. In fact, the platform won't even have any visibility into the internal logic of these applications that we have grown to rely on. So to conclude, what this means is that if your goal is to understand the security and safety implications of the smart home by leveraging the properties of third-party integration or home automation, then IoT apps are not really the right candidates because they don't represent uh, popular third-party integration or they don't represent realistic home automation. They don't represent either of these two things. In fact, what we need to do is we need to really rethink our amplified approach towards automate home automation security analysis and towards system security and identify other research opportunities that might be available, not in these apps, but that might still be available that might enable practical security benefits for end users. So to identify such opportunities, let's start with some research questions. Now, uh, let's start with what we know really, right? So one thing I said is we shouldn't be analyzing IoT applications because they're not representative and so on. So the question remains, if not IoT applications, what should we analyze? Now, we know that users create routines through platform UIs, and these user-driven routines truly represent user requirements. Now, I'm not going to ask you to simply swap out IoT applications and swap in user-driven routines. That's not how we do things. However, what we can do is we can take these user-driven routines and then we can use them to somehow generate a realistic characterization of the home that we can then use to create scenarios or examples of home automation that are realistic, that we can then use for evaluating or designing security systems. Another thing that we know is that third-party integration is often treated like a black box cloud by existing platforms. And we also know that users control these uh, cloud components with mobile companion apps and that these companion apps are the weakest link, uh, weakest security link in the chain, right? So uh, our past research has found that uh, roughly 20% or more than 20% of mobile applications that uh, connect to smart home devices that are present on the Android Play Store have at least one SSL vulnerability that's similar to the one that we found in the TP-Link app. So these apps are highly vulnerable. And these vulnerabilities are not because we don't know how to secure them, right? There's been a ton of research on this. The first paper was, I believe, or at least on mobile apps, the first paper was published in 2011. And since then, we've built several tools, both in research and academia, uh, in order to analyze these applications. However, the problem is not that we don't know how to analyze these apps, but that existing tools and techniques may simply not be reliable enough, may simply not be correct enough, right? So unless we truly evaluate how these tools work, we won't be able to proactively uh, fix these third-party companion apps at the development stage itself. So if we want to fix these apps, conversely, we need to build systems that can evaluate our security analysis to make sure they're correct enough uh, to benefit the end user. Now, finally, again, let me remind you that uh, third-party integration is represented by black box clouds, right? So, since these third-party apps are now black boxes, there is really no way for us to understand the internal logic. And that is a problem because a lot of the systems that have been built uh, to secure IoT often rely on being able to view the internal uh, logic of these IoT apps. So how can you build systems without relying on this logic? Well, it turns out that there might be some context that's present in the devices that are present in the smart home. So you can take that context and build system level defenses, such as things for providing integrity checks using purely these device checks uh, and in a way that's agnostic to the internal app logic so as, so as to stay independent of it. So I want to explain each of these three trusts in a variable level of detail, uh, starting with the, uh, creating a realistic perspective of home automation, which essentially is uh, just 
making creating some data on how end users automate their own, just figuring this particular piece out. Now, we need to know how people automate their homes for a very practical reason, right? Because it's really hard to build practical systems without knowing what environment they will be deployed in or without knowing how people automate their homes. So let me give you an example of one, uh, one process that happens when you design a system. It's security policy specification where you want to design a security policy uh, that doesn't have too many false alarms or doesn't really miss too many things, doesn't have too many false negatives. Now, the current approach that we use for policy specification uh, in the smart home domain is called use mysterious case analysis, which is essentially a requirements engineering approach where you identify a certain set of assets you care about. You imagine use and misuse cases relevant with respect to those assets. And then you specify policies to ensure that the use cases do happen and the misuse cases never happen. It's a really simple concept, right? Now, the hardest part, at least for me in this case, is imagining these use and misuse cases. I mean, think about what you're asking a researcher to do. You're asking them to enumerate every single way in which a particular asset might be misused or might be used. And that is extremely hard. It's error prone, it's manual, it's time consuming, and it's really limited by what the researchers past experience and domain experience, uh, domain experience I mean. And we're all security experts, we're not really experts on those specific smart domains. So that's one thing you need to consider. You know, this is one of the reasons, this particular step is one of the reasons uh, why policy specification is often punted to future work in a load of system security papers. So can we do better? Can we automate this somehow? You know, what if we can, instead of giving these users cases, what if we provide the researcher with examples? So what the researcher can do is inspect these realistic examples, realistic situations, and simply say, yes, this is safe, or no, this has a security or safety or privacy violation. So we are reducing the problem of enumerating all these users cases to simply inspect the industry examples. But even for us to be able to do that, we still need to know how people automate their homes. Let's consider evaluating a system, that right? you evaluate systems for performance, security, usability, and a load of other, host of other things. And the way we evaluate system now is also suboptimal. We either test our system with random events or test them with event sequences that are drawn from IoT apps, which is somewhat better, but still almost random, right? Can we do better? Can we build realistic test cases that are representative of what the system will face in the wild? What situation, what circumstances will be facing the wild? Well, in order to be able to do that, we still need to know how people automate their homes. So to this end, let me introduce you the concept of home automation scenario. So let's take an example. Say it's evening time right now, uh, our user Alice comes home, right? She uh, turns on the gas range, starts cooking, turns the music on, starts the speaker. Uh, all of these are really normal things for someone to do when they come home, nothing looks abnormal right now. Uh, after some time, Alice moves to another part of the house, right? So uh, she moves out of the kitchen, maybe to another room where she's storing her valuables. Uh, the security camera there detects motion and takes a picture. Now, by itself, if you look at the last two events, the security camera uh, detecting motion and taking a picture in response to that isn't really a problem, right? That's what the security camera is meant for. It's meant for monitoring, which involves taking pictures when you detect motion. However, when you look at this preceding context, when you look at this event, that it's Alice who's come home and it's Alice's motion, and that's what the security camera is capturing, that's when it becomes a privacy violation, right? So this preceding context and this particular event reveals uh, a privacy violation. And in fact, you wouldn't really have seen that violation in the routine itself. That's what makes it a problem because Alice doesn't want herself to be monitored in home. She just wants uh, it to be on when she's not home, right? So this reveals a privacy violation that just would not have been visible without this preceding context. So if such scenarios, such event sequences were widely available, we could be able to at least uh, discover such violations that are not visible in routines, but visible when you provide this additional context. But more importantly, we would be able to use these scenarios in some way or form as examples for a researcher to inspect in order to create security policies. We would also be able to use these scenarios as test cases for evaluating security research 
or even for black box testing of third-party integrations that we just can't do right now because they're just on some cloud somewhere, right? So we can use these scenarios in several ways. And uh, to derive these scenarios, essentially, what we're really trying to do is we're trying to characterize or create a natural, uh, realistic model, a characterization of home automation, which essentially is really a modeling problem, isn't it? Now, when we consider this a modeling problem, uh, there are two very obvious questions that arise. First, uh, you're wondering about what do we model? Well, given the direction the stock is uh, taking and just given what we've seen so far, the answer is obvious. We're going to model user-driven routines primarily because we're looking to create a realistic characterization and user-driven routines that people create represent their realistic requirements. So it's a, just, it's a match made in heaven, right? We're gonna model user-driven routines. What's more exciting is how we're gonna model it. We're gonna use statistical language modeling to model routines in some form, not directly, but in order to be able to predict scenarios event by event in a manner that's not very different from a predictive keyboard if you've used one, right? The way predictive keyboards work is you type in some, uh, type in some words and it looks at what you've typed, it looks at the context and predicts future words. That's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to build a model that can take a look at a few events that have happened. And then based on that context, based on these events, uh, predict future events that can happen in the home. And those will be our scenarios. So let me give you uh, some insight into the intuition behind this particular design decision. So the key intuition here uh, is founded in uh, a very foundational result in natural language processing that says that while languages themselves are theoretically very expressive, both in terms of the vocabulary and in terms of the grammar, our speech, the practical utterances by people is limited and natural in that it's repetitive enough and uses such a small space of the language that it's predictable, right? It contains predictable repetition. Let me show you what I mean. If you consider this sentence, you only live blank. If you're aware of how we talk or if you're aware, aware of 21st century speech, you know that the last word there is words. You just know it, right? Even though there are other words that are uh, equally possible grammatically, you know that the most probable word is once. A statistical language model trained on a corpus of extant speech will make the same prediction based on what is observed in terms of uh, the use of that phrase, right? Based on the context, based on the preceding phrase you only live, it will always predict once as the subsequent, uh, as a subsequent word. What we're saying is that it might be possible to model home automation events or sequences in the same way. Let's take this example. Uh, I walk into my room, the light turns on, I walk out. If you consider these three home automation events, it's most likely that the next event is going to be light turns on. I mean, there are other events that might be possible, but the most likely event is probably light turning off, given all that has happened before. And that's the intuition, that's what we're trying to achieve. And again, we're not the first uh, to use naturalness out of the language context is being heavily used in the software engineering context for tasks such as code completion, where again, the idea is that programs created by people are natural because they're essentially constructs of human creation, which is why they're repetitive and predictable. And what we're trying to say here is that user-driven routines are an instance of end-user programming. And when people schedule these different routines to execute in their house at different times of the day, what they're actually doing is they're creating a program for themselves where each of those routine invocations can be similar, assumed to be equivalent to a method invocation that you make in a typical program, right? Now, people aren't writing code here. They're just making routines happen at different times, but that actually looks really much, uh, a lot like a program with different methods invoked, uh, invoked at different times. And that's what people are doing. So what we're doing here is saying that if you take this home automation program for a user and you flatten it to a sequence of events, you marshal it into a homogeneous sequence, then that sequence will be a repetitive and natural if you consider a group of such sequences. So to more formally state this, I present to you the naturalist hypothesis for home automation. What we're saying is that home automation sequences created by humans are implicitly natural in that they exhibit patterns that make them really predictable. 
So we can use statistical language modeling techniques to analyze corpora of such sequences and predict valid and useful scenarios that enable the design and evaluation of security systems. That's all we're trying to do, right? So to test this natural hypothesis to realize this vision, we built the Helium framework with essentially an end-to-end -end framework that takes care of everything from collecting data to modeling it to generating scenarios and even using those scenarios for security safety analysis, building tools that are, allow you to do so. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to uh, explain some of the basic building blocks of Helium without going into too much uh, uh, detail regarding uh, the different design decisions that we did uh, to, to contextualize uh, both natural language processing as well as um, as well as uh, just uh, home automation security analysis. So if you're interested in integrated details, I do encourage you to read the paper, but I'm just going to explain the high level concepts and contribution of this. So we begin by collecting routines. That's sort of an obvious step, right? But aside from routines, we also collect uh, something known as an execution indicator per routine. Right? Execution indicators are clues that we collect from users regarding when and how frequently a routine might execute. And these aren't absolute values, these are more like ranges uh, that indicate when and how frequently a routine executes. So we take these routines and execution indicators and we use an approach known as informed scheduling, informed because it's informed by the user's intuition of how frequently and when the routine executes. So we take these routines and use informed scheduling to, uh, to in a way set these routines in a month long time series, which when flattened into an event sequence gives you a home automation sequence. And a collection of these home automation sequences is the home corpus which we use for modeling. Now, we in particular in our system, we use NGAM language modeling, but you could use other statistical or otherwise language modeling techniques. We are still experimenting with some of that. And N here in NGAM simply indicates the length of the sequence that the model is going to consider. So not a detail we should be concerned with NGAM. So we use NGAM language models. And essentially what these models do is they estimate the probability of subsequences in that particular data set. That's really all they're doing. They're estimating the probabilities of all possible subsequences in that particular data set. Once you've completed this probability estimation, once you've built this model, you then want to uh, create scenarios from it, right? And the way we're going to create scenarios is exactly as I told you before. We're going to consider a history of events, a certain context uh, of events that have already happened, and then predict the next event. Now, we're not just going to predict the most likely event next. For this, uh, what we essentially want to do is we want to generate expressive scenarios, which means we want to generate both likely scenarios as well as extremely unlikely hypothetical situations, right? So we build the concept of prediction flavors, which are essentially tweaks to the probability estimation that enable us to generate both extremely likely scenarios by predicting the next most likely event or extremely unlikely scenarios by predicting the most unlikely event. And you can essentially keep on predicting events by simply uh, treating this prediction in a sliding window fashion. So the new event that's predicted becomes a part of the history, and then you move on and on and on and keep predicting new events. So you could basically use this model as a sequence generator to keep on predicting these events to give you both likely and unlikely scenarios, and in fact, everything in between, depending on how you uh, manipulate the probability estimation. Now, when we have these scenarios, we put them to use using tools uh, that we've built specifically for security analysis, but I'm just going to explain these tools uh, when it comes to that. So we initialized Helium with uh, data collected from about 40 participants, uh, roughly 200 uh, routines that we collect from these participants. And even before modeling uh, this data, modeling these routines, uh, we found some interesting things that I wanted to share with you guys today. So the first thing we found was that usable routines are really important to people, right? Most participants indicated that they would like at least some control in being able to create routines. And in fact, some participants, a strong majority of 40% indicated that they wanted to be the sole person in charge of creating the routine. So they did not want platform or developer involvement at all. Another thing we found is something I described before is that users do need routines because more than 42% of routines created by users were not represented by any of the IoT apps in the smart things uh, marketplace. 
One surprising thing that we found was that users perceive security and privacy differently from security researchers. So there were several devices. We gave users roughly 70 devices, a list of 70 devices to create routines. And then we also asked them which of these devices they consider to be security and privacy or safety sensitive. And to a surprise, every single device was marked as security or privacy or safety sensitive by at least one user. Um, uh, one participant in the experiment, which essentially tells us that uh, users really are concerned about the security or safety of most of these devices. And most of our users were not security experts. Now, the last findings are actually pretty surprising. Uh, we found that users can very confidently specify execution indicators. So we found that users can essentially specify indicators uh, for most of the routines, which we actually expected to spectacularly fail at it, but surprisingly it didn't. Uh, they, guess, they were confident about most routines, aside from just unpredictable things like carbon monoxide refinement. Now, once we collected these routines, we created the home corpus using informed scheduling, so there's a corpus of home automation sequences, and we tested the naturalness hypothesis, because that is what our entire approach banks on, right? So we tested the natural hypothesis using the metric of cross entropy, which essentially uh, computes how surprised the model is when exposed to sequences from the same domain. So if your cross entropy is lower, it's great. If it's higher, that means your data isn't natural enough, right? We compared the cross entropy for the home corpus with both English language and software corpora and found that the home, as shown in this graph, we found that uh, our home corpus was significantly more natural with more English and software corpora. But that's not the surprising result. What's surprising is uh, if you observe the two curves in the middle, which, both, uh, which are both for uh, the programming language, the C-sharp corpus, you see that uh, the plot at the top, which is C-sharp without syntactic tokens, uh, has higher cross entropy, which means it's worse in terms of naturalness than the plot at the bottom, which is C-sharp with syntactic tokens, right? And the reason for that is syntactic tokens, such as commas and semicolons, influence uh, the predictability of the model and in, in some way bias it because you do not want to learn the syntax, you want the model to learn the semantics. So they bias it with the syntactic loop. Uh, and once you remove that, the naturalness decreases. But home automation corpora or home automation event sequences do not have any syntactic tokens at all. They have purely semantic tokens, which means that the naturalness that is learned uh, or the home automation corpus is even more natural than, uh, say, software corpora with the syntactic tokens removed. This is actually a really cool, uh, cool result that we uh, found with this, uh, this approach. Now, after we created this model, uh, we defined a set of prediction flavors for security. So we defined the up flavor, which predicts natural scenarios by predicting the most likely events or a series of most likely events. And we created the down flavor, which does the exact opposite, which tweaks the probability estimation to predict unnatural scenarios, which means to predict uh, basically the most unlikely event given a particular history. And the down flavor essentially can be seen as something crazy happening in the system is constantly under attack or constantly under stress. So you want to test those situations, you want to be expressive in your scenarios, which is why you do want something like the down flavor. And we put these scenarios to use uh, using two tools uh, that we created for exactly this reason. We created an execution engine that executes scenarios as test cases with real and virtual devices. And we created a snapshot module, which is essentially like a virtual machine. What it does is simulates the execution of a scenario event by event. And for each event, it generates a snapshot of the home like a virtual machine would do. We use these, uh, both of these tools and actually got some pretty good results, even with minimal use of these tools. So with the execution engine, with uh, just minimal testing with the SmartThings platform, we found two platform level flaws that were also reported independently by end users, which suggests that we are finding representative flaws and one device level flaw. With the snapshot module, our researcher was able to specify 17 unique security, privacy, or safety policies through 27 unique violations that we discovered from over 2,500 snapshots that we generated uh, using histories from five users. Now, the number of snapshots might look like a lot, but the researcher simply breezed through most of the snapshots because there's simply uh, state changes in uninteresting events, right? So it, I think, if I recollect, it took our researcher roughly uh, 10 hours to compute all of these policies, which is minimal and which require, which is very less subjective than our typical requirements engineering approach. 
Finally, uh, while uh, helium creates natural and uh, useful scenarios, we also wanted to check the validity of the scenario. So we also wanted to find out whether the scenario that we create at least look reasonable to end users, at least look like something that could be possible, right? So we uh, performed two additional user studies with 16 additional evaluators, right? First, we tried to find out whether routines or scenarios of length two generated by helium uh, would seem just as natural to these, uh, would seem realistic or uh, valid to these evaluators. And what we found that these routines that we created seem just as valid as routines created by other end users. But more interestingly, we found that the routines that we created with the down flavor actually almost unanimously seemed uh, were perceived as uh, invalid or unlikely or even unsafe in certain cases by end users, which suggests that there is potential for using down flavor to generate adversarial uh, scenarios. Uh, in terms of generating entire scenarios, uh, Evaluators generally found scenarios generated by Helium to be valid. And when we integrated the user's data, these scenarios are found to be even more, uh, even more valid. And that's essentially an expected result when you consider such uh, prediction systems. So what did we learn from this? We learned that user-driven home automation is natural, even more than software. And more importantly, we can use statistical language models to learn what normal is and then build realistic and practical test cases that are down to field data that can be not only used to build policies and test the system we build, but also to test these black boxes or these third-party integrations that are deployed as black boxes by platforms. But it's much better to be able to test this in these integrations or companion apps uh, using white box testing to basically address some of the anomalies that you find in them at the development stage itself. And for this very reason, enterprises are, have been consistently deploying static analysis security tools in order, uh, in order to essentially find several of these problems at the development stage itself and to, build, to enable developers uh, to build compliant and secure application. And GitHub's code code scan, for example, is the latest initiative in this area. Now, the problem isn't these compliance initiatives. The problem is that we don't really know how well these tools work. And let me give you some intuition behind why we suspect these tools might be problematic. So static analysis tools in general are sound theoretically, but soundly in practice in that they make a certain set of sound secure decisions but also make several unsound decisions, several sacrifices for improving their precision, for improving their speed, or for getting the ability to scale to a large number of analysis targets. Now, soundly tools themselves are not a problem. You'd rather have a tool that misses some anomalies, but catches most of it and doesn't result in thousands of false positives. So soundly tools are not a problem. The problem is that tool designers may simply not document all of their unsound choices. But that's not the worst of it. The worst situations happen when tool designers don't even know all the unsound assumptions that they're making. So many of the assumptions could be implicit. They don't know the design or evaluation graphs that don't make that tool just soundy, but simply unsound. And when tool designers aren't even aware of inherited unsoundness that they get from their dependencies. So in order to evaluate tools, uh, security tools, uh, empirically to discover such unsound assumptions, we built the Muse framework, which essentially uses mutation analysis for this purpose. Now, I'm going to explain both Muse and mutation analysis using this figure. It's a very simple concept to understand. You take a static analysis tool that you want to analyze. Then you mutate a bunch of applications, say, uh, by inserting anomalies. Now, say you're evaluating a data leak data. So naturally, the anomaly that you insert in these applications are going to be data leaks, right? So you mutate these applications by inserting these data leaks. And then you test those applications with the static analysis tool, which gives you both caught and uncaught mutants. The uncaught mutants are going to be things that the tool could not catch, which will allow you to investigate further and improve the tool and fix its design and implementation flaws. So really simple concept. The two important questions to answer here is how do you express the mutation which, for which we build security operators and where you see it in the particular mutated application. Let me explain with an example. So if you're evaluating a data leak detector, you're going to express the mutation with a simple data leak, which is basically like taking uh, some private information, such as scattered information, and leaking it to the logs. But you can get really creative in terms of how you place it. What you've done here 
is we have placed that data leak in the on receive method of a broadcast receiver, which is basically an Android's version of an event handler, which is instantiated inside another broadcast receiver. And this executes the leaks data very easy for developers to create, but extremely hard for <clears throat> extremely hard for uh, tool designers or tools to catch. In fact, there isn't a single tool that can actually uh, catch this. So we took this approach and we evaluated popular data leak detectors with tens of thousands of mutants, which led to 25 false flaws falling into five flaw classes, some of which were even designable flaws. But when you think of IoT, you're not really interested in data leaks as a flaw of choice. You're more interested in things like cryptographic API misuse, which is why we're going to switch gears to crypto misuse now. Right? And we essentially, initially, we tried to evaluate uh, for uh, crypto detectors using a similar approach, but that did not work out because crypto detectors and data leak detectors focus on different things. Your data leak detectors, when you're evaluating a data leak detector, it's more important to be creative in where you place the leaks because you want to make sure that the detector finds even hidden leaks. But when you're evaluating crypto detector, it's most important to express all possible cryptographic misuse. And that is quite challenging. In fact, we built a taxonomy of cryptographic misuse in a data-driven fashion by examining uh, roughly last uh, 20 years of anything that was said about crypto misuse. And our taxonomy consists of roughly 105 items. So 105 different misuse cases, which suggests that it's not really easy uh, to do this uh, directly by leveraging use. But you still created this taxonomy and created mutants, uh, which led us to find significant flaws, roughly 21 flaws in major tools, tools like CryptoGuard, that's one of the latest uh, academic iterations, or tools like Coverity, which are popular and used by thousands of developers. And these anomalies were extremely simplistic. We didn't expect to find things that were these simplistic. For example, in many of these tools, we found that they did not, they ignored uh, anything that contained Android dot which actually made them ignore several popular applications. They were simply not analyzing these applications. In one tool we found, in a couple of tools we found that they did not have multi-text support. And for those of you who don't know, multi-text is Android's way of splitting the APK into multiple parts, right? And uh, if you do not support multi-text, you would probably, uh, you would simply not analyze the application fully. Again, tools that were built way after multi-text was released still do not support it. The last two flaws are particularly surprising because they represent popular ways in which developers uh, use crypto API. So if you look at the last two flaws, what you see is uh, we are essentially creating the desk cipher, which is something you should not be using. So we're creating the desk cipher using the cipher.get and this API, but instead of passing the desk in uppercase, we're passing it lowercase. Now Java accepts this and gives you the desk cipher. That's not a problem, but there are tools on this list, on this very popular list, that would not detect something so trivial. Similarly, in the fourth law, if you pass something as, an, uh, as a variable, instead of passing it as a constant, there are very popular industry tools that won't detect that. And when tools fail so trivially, bad stuff happens. So uh, case in point, uh, there's a particular major appliance manufacturer that was recently awarded a gold star rating for compliance by a major standards organization. I'm not naming names because we're still talking to these people and fixing these flaws. We analyzed the smart home app belonging to this uh, appliance manufacturer. And we found that it uses AES and ECB mode. And it misuses SSL TLS in the most common ways. And this really shouldn't happen after you've already reduced, uh, gotten this rating. And the only thing this suggests is that there was failure on the part of security tools at some point. So when tools break, bad stuff happens, right? So we really need to evaluate and fix these tools while we have the time. But let's say these tools work and we've already created the realistic perspective. We have done everything right up to this point, but still something gets through. What do we do then? Are we back to square one? Well, not really. What we can do in this particular case, if the attacker can still make that API call, is we can use the existing context of the devices, such as the door lock, to check whether that call is valid. So if you can ask, uh, so if the attacker says, send the home from away to home mode, all you have to check is if the door lock was recently unlocked legitimately. And that's essentially a strong indication of the user really being home. If not, you simply deny the access, right? What you're really doing is you're using existing device context to endorse 
the proposed state change, uh, essentially uh, using devices to provide the ground truth to validate the proposed state change. Now, this is a work in progress. There are several challenges in terms of policy and reform policy, and even in validating the system that you're trying to address. But if we can actually make this happen, then we should be able uh, to build defenses that are completely agnostic of the internal logic of these uh, third-party integrations and purely work on what you can observe on the ground. So if there is something that I would leave you with at the end of this talk is that applications have been really great to us, right? As a security community, we've benefited from applications. We've done a ton of research, published a ton of papers using application and through application analysis. But when it comes to these more evolved systems such as a smart home, it may simply be time to move away from application analysis because apps don't manifest themselves as they did in the past. So we need to move to greener pastures. We need to recognize more opportunities uh, that are presenting themselves that don't rely on these applications and still present practical benefits to users in this post-app smart home. With this, I'm going to end my talk and I'll be happy to take questions. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Adwit. Really appreciate it. So very interesting topic. Are there any questions? Okay. <clears throat> so it seems we don't have any questions, but I have a couple of, uh, you know, like maybe comments or uh, questions that we can discuss. So, I mean, this um, Internet of Things devices, right? We have seen um, it's becoming popular. Uh, and especially in some countries, we see like different devices are already deployed, but also some users hesitate to use them, right? Um, such as the cameras, for instance. I mean, it has a lot of advantages, but also, you know, like we see a lot of security issues for that reason, they don't use it. Um, however, you know, like these devices are also used in other domains as well, right? For instance, autonomous vehicles also includes like many sensors and actuators, even like the manufacturing systems um, have like a lot of sensors and actuators as well. Uh, however, in these platforms, we don't have custom automations, but they are like all very well known, right? So do you think that like in the future, considering these deployments of different actuators and sensors uh, for security community, there are like a lot of things to do, a lot of things to research. Sorry, uh, could you repeat the last part? You, uh, yes. you so, uh, so basically my question uh, asks, you know, like the use of sensors and actuators in different domains will exist and increase, right? So do you think that like traditional security mechanisms will basically can be used to address these, like the security problems that we can have in the future? Or do you think that we need like some new techniques new methods that aims at for these particular sensors and actuators? Yeah, that's a really good question, right? So uh, I, the answer is sort of goes both ways. Uh, you can, I, I believe you should be able to at least treat some of the basic problems using traditional security techniques. So a traditional system level security evaluation or a network uh, security evaluation should still be doable and we can still um, look into some of that because you'll find that a lot of these systems still suffer from some of the most basic problems. So we'll still be able to research how to improve the basic problems, but uh, there are other areas of research that we need to be looking at. For example, you, uh, you already talked about devices being deployed in the wide, right? Uh, one big question is how do you update these devices if they do not update on your own? How do you retrofit these devices to automatically update, to become stronger if they already aren't, right? to become, to reduce those vulnerabilities. How do you actually get that done? Or how do you somehow enforce uh, the standards that we are setting now with the IoT security law? Uh, 
how do you automatically interpret those standards and automatically get them enforced on these device manufacturers so there are some more high level problems that we need to look at but i do believe that the basic security our, our basic mechanisms still have uh, a place in in uh, going forward but we all, we might also need to look into other areas and might need to look at how intelligent systems are using those sensors and what problems might lie in that particular use, right? What attackers could attack those intelligent systems. You might uh, need to look at uh, how those systems are specified versus how they're actually built. And can we automatically make sure they stick to the security specification or we can automate security configurations? There is plenty of things we could do aside from the typical things we would do. But uh, if it comes to the customization and the applications, it's not really going to be the same green pastures that we saw in the Android space. It's not just not going to be like that. All right, all right, thank you. So, I have a question in the, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So is this approach useful to analyze other complex systems yet smarter than ID? Yes, uh, in fact, uh, I don't know which of those approaches you're talking about. If you talk about the first, uh, if you talk about the first uh, approach, um, where you build a natural characterization, we're already working uh, with industry to characterize a completely different kind of system, a system that generates logs, but it's not an IoT system. It's a totally different system. Uh, but we are trying to create a model of the logs to predict what might happen in the future. Uh, if you're talking about the stuff that came later, the SSL vulnerability stuff, uh, it definitely transcends uh, even beyond your uh, typical IoT crypto use case. Uh, we are analyzing many, many more uh, uh, analysis tools, even the more than the ones that I've talked about uh, that I've mentioned in this talk. Uh, and we found some significant vulnerabilities in them. And that applies to everything, anything that's deployed on GitHub to anything that's in the Android Play Store. Hope that answers your question. All right. So um, I also additionally see like in this domain, um, what makes it different than traditional computing system is the physical processes, right? Basically, the sensors sense the like the physical environment. And based on these uh, measurements, the actuators take some actions, right? So this creates a, another kind of a, like a attack vector for the uh, adversaries because now they can directly attack the physical processes itself, right? So actually we have seen like recent attacks uh, for the autonomous vehicles. Um, so basically they are pointing out uh, some lasers or they are pointing on some lights so that the LIDAR devices or radar devices uh, make incorrect decisions. And then if they make some incorrect decisions in this way, they may crash to a pedestrian or they maybe they don't stop when there's a stop sign, right? So, uh, but historically, if you see like everything was digital, so we apply all these um, security mechanisms in the digital domain. I think like uh, the physical processes and how we can ensure the correctness of these physical processes is also very interesting research direction. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Uh, in fact, uh, that's one of the things we're working on, right? So um, there, there already has been a ton of work in this area in terms of looking at how at physical attackers with physical access can confuse uh, these intelligent systems. I believe there was some work from uh, Hong Shin, who's now at uh, University of Buffalo, the IoT Mon system, that uh, looked at some of these things. There's also an upcoming paper, I think, uh, at Usenix, I'm not really sure. That also discusses it, that provides a solution for uh, preventing physical adversities. But yeah, this is definitely something to look at. Uh, there has been some work in, I believe, the IoT community, so the pure IoT community, where they're trying to model these physical processes and then trying to apply anomaly detection purely at the physical levels, so looking at what states these sensors take and then slowly collecting those states and applying anomaly detection to them. Uh, what I believe is that for something like the autono autonomous vehicle or the smart home, this is going to be extremely challenging to do. We'll be able to do it, but that's why it will be a research challenge. Uh, on the contrary, if you're considering something like an industrial control system, where you've got one uh, machine and you know exactly what that machine is supposed to do, that machine is only supposed to do four or five things, that's where anomaly detection becomes much easier because you already know exactly what the 
bounds are of what the machine is supposed to do. But when it comes to something as expressive as the smart home domain or as expressive as uh, your automobile, it's going to be extremely challenging for us to sort of establish what normal looks like. I think that's what we're trying to do here, but it's just difficult to establish what normal looks like. All right. Thank you so much for the insights and great talk, uh, Adwait. Really appreciate it uh, hosting you at Sirius today. Absolutely. Yeah, no problem, man. I've got my contact information here. Uh, it should also be available. You probably have it, Burke. So uh, if anybody has any more questions, feel free to contact me at me. Okay. Thank you so much again. So right. thanks for joining us again for today. Thank you. My pleasure.